Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact. With semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch, it's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. Go spread the word. When you get a fresh, hot McCrispie from McDonald's and you can feel the heat coming through the bag, don't try to wait till you get home. Always respect hot chicken. The McCrispie, only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Attend the tale of Sweeney Todd His skin was pale and his eye was odd He shaved the faces of gentlemen Who never thereafter were heard of again He trod a path that few have trod Did Sweeney Todd A demon barber of Fleet Street And with the ballad of Sweeney Todd, so begins our tale for today, as performed by Len Cariou and Company in the original 1979 Broadway cast recording. Since he first made his appearance in the flimsy pages of a Victorian penny dreadful, Sweeney Todd, the murderous and demon barber of London's Fleet Street, has captured the fascination of audiences from Victorian adolescence to modern-day theater audiences. What makes this frightening fellow, whose skin was pale and his eye was odd, gripping to us is that his crimes were violent, vengeful, and took advantage of the unsuspecting. Why, that could have been us. His story has been adapted and expanded since those penny-dreadful days of Victorian London's 1830s to more modern times to portray a man whose life has gone very, very wrong. If it's possible to see any humanity amidst his horrific crimes, modern-day dramatists have attempted to tell that tale. Most notably, of course, is Stephen Sondheim and Hugh Wheeler's groundbreaking musical adaptation that opened on Broadway in 1979. The Broadway stage is about to get a new production of this brilliant and classic musical, and hence the Gilded Gentleman finds this a good moment to go back in time to look at the sources for just who Sweeney Todd was the Victorian world of the penny dreadfuls that made him popular, and just how brightly the glint of his razor still shines for spellbound audiences today. And as a very special treat, the Gilded Gentleman audience will have the opportunity to hear from someone who knows this show better than most. This episode includes my interview with actress and singer Sarah Rice, who created the role of Joanna in the original 1979 Broadway production. I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, where we take a journey into corners light and dark of America's Gilded Age, France's Belle Epoque, and England's late Victorian and Edwardian eras. 
If you find yourself wandering up Fleet Street in modern-day London towards St. Paul's Cathedral at the top of Ludgate Hill, it's hard not to notice the Church of St. Dunstan's in the West as you pass by. Situated on a site dating back to medieval times, the church we see today, beautifully designed in early 19th-century Gothic style, was built in the 1830s. You can't help noticing its unique octagonal tower rising above London traffic. It was not long after this church was built that our demon barber Sweeney Todd made his appearance in print. The character of Todd, who, with the single-mindedness of a serial killer that he was, tilted his victims backwards to their death in the pages of the penny-dreadful tale A String of Pearls, published in 1846. The site of St. Dunstan's has another connection to the tale of Todd since it was just adjacent to the church at 186 Fleet Street that one would have noticed a long white barber pole painted with the curling ribbon of red, like you could say, a trickle of blood, that signaled the shop of Sweeney himself, at least in fiction. And as our authors tell us, across the bell yard at the back, one would have found, perhaps led by the curiously foul smell from the chimney, the pie shop of one Mrs. Lovett. Sweeney Todd, when we meet him, is a long, low-jointed, ill-put-together sort of fellow, with an immense mouth and such huge hands and feet that he was, in his way, quite a natural curiosity. And what was more wonderful, considering his trade, there was never seen such a head of hair as Sweeney Todd's. It was a most terrific head of hair, and as Sweeney kept all his combs in it, some said his scissors likewise. When he put his head out of the shop door to see what sort of weather it was, he might have been mistaken for a warrior with a very remarkable headdress. And on that day, when we first meet him, it is just about three quarters past six on a drizzly evening. A seafaring man named Colonel Jeffries approaches the shop with his loyal dog, Hector, to find the barber himself. It seems one of his sailor friends who had returned to London to bring a gift of pearls to a young woman known as Joanna Oakley was last seen entering the shop of Mr. Todd, but was, curiously, never seen again. And so begins the tale of Sweeney Todd, at least in its original telling. And we'll come back to see just how that original story differs from what we see today. A String of Pearls, or The Sailor's Gift, a tale of peculiar interest, was a penny dreadful. Penny dreadfuls have been called the greatest publishing phenomenon of early 19th century London and in many ways reflected the growing social change of the time. Penny dreadfuls, also called penny awfuls or penny horribles, were really the first pulp fiction. Aimed at an audience of adolescent boys and young men, these 8- to 16-page weekly pamphlets told tales gruesome, ghoulish, and gory, and readers just couldn't get enough. Early Victorian social reform that certainly, according to Charles Dickens, wasn't enough, or happening fast enough, brought about an audience of boys and young men with at least some degree of literacy. With proper child labor laws still a very long way off, children as young as eight years old, and certainly through adolescence, were sent to work in unsafe conditions in the industrial factories and workshops all over London. For those that could read, these weekly installments of escape fueled their imaginations and forced them to read. Truly costing only a penny, the installments ranging from around 20 or so up to nearly 100 in some cases were bought and read voraciously by those who could. 
Often small clubs were formed where one member would read the story to any of the rest who couldn't read. Some of the more popular titles included Varney the Vampire, The Maniac Father, Black Bess the Night of the Road, The Calendar of Horrors, and The Victim of Seduction. Needless to say, Victorian parents and moral leaders were horrified at the popularity of the Penny Dreadfuls and any effect that they could have on the morality of their strictly brought-up offspring. In fact, a number of brutal murders, thefts, and sensational crimes committed by adolescents and younger men were attributed to the effects of this scandalous publishing phenomenon. Victorian London was on many levels a frightening place. Thousands of new arrivals were now swarming its narrow, curving, winding streets. Disease proliferated, working conditions were horrendous, poverty rampant, and the idea that horror, danger, and death were always lurking just under the surface or coming toward one in the famous mist, or could even appear in your own bedroom at night in a clap of thunder fueled the fear and morbid fascination that propelled sales. The Victorian world was obsessed with the neo-Gothic sensibility of the supernatural, and much of London's population believed wholeheartedly in ghosts and other creatures like vampires, and some thought they walked among them unnoticed and ready to kill. Most of the characters and stories in the Penny Dreadfuls did not stand the test of time, and, like the cheap paper on which they were printed, dried up and were crumbled into muddy gutters and were washed away. But the tale and character of Sweeney Todd was different. Here was a story that involved revenge, rage, and class inequalities, among other issues. It also fueled the Victorian fascination with serial killers and the gruesome nature of Sweeney and Mrs. Lovett's cannibalistic crimes. The tale of Sweeney Todd, unlike most of the other Penny Dreadful fodder, was transformed to gather new audiences far beyond the pulpy pages. The actual authorship of the story has been debated and remains unproven. There has been curiosity and speculation that the original story was actually based on fact, that there lurked in the pages of history butchers who chopped up their prey into bits. Scholars and authors have debated and debunked, but all agree it's best to know just exactly who is making your meat pies, and really it's best to buy them from a reliable source. Shortly after appearing in the Penny Dreadful format, a version of the Sweeney Todd tale was written for the London stage as a melodrama, and a book version followed in 1850. Additional adaptations were made for the stage, and even Sweeney crossed the English Channel to spread its macabre sensibility to French audiences. Two British silent film versions were made in the 1920s and 1930s. You may be surprised to know that Sweeney Todd actually made his Broadway debut in 1924 in a non-musical version still based on the original tale. And Sweeney was played by popular British actor Robert Vivian and, according to the New York Times, was thought excellent in his portrayal by New York audiences. Even though variations of the story appear in all the various versions, Sweeney remained an unsympathetic character, murderous to the core, and audiences clapped at both his and Mrs. Lovett's final retribution. Sweeney poisons Mrs. Lovett, and Sweeney himself is ultimately apprehended by the police and hanged. Good 
while messy, does triumph over evil. The tale of Sweeney turned dramatically in the early 1970s when British playwright, actor, and director Christopher Bond brought his version and his interpretation of the Sweeney story to the stage. In Bond's version, we learn Sweeney has a backstory, one now familiar to us. He was once the simple barber, Benjamin Barker, with a beloved wife and daughter who, wrongly convicted of a crime, is sent to a prisoner's colony in Australia for 15 years. Upon returning to London, he learns his young wife was assaulted by the evil Judge Turpin, who has been keeping his daughter Joanna as his ward. It is his sense of rage and revenge that lead to his own horrific crimes. In the original tale, we know nothing of Sweeney's origins. He remains a one-dimensional image of evil. Mrs. Lovett is strictly a business partner, not a romantic interest. The character of Joanna is not his daughter, rather the intended recipient of the aforementioned string of pearls. However, it is with her pluck and courage dressing as a boy and infiltrating Sweeney's shop by working for him, she uncovers the repercussions of his razor. Joanna is finally reunited with her lover, the supposedly dead Mark, who had been held captive by Mrs. Lovett and forced to work as her cook. So at least part of the original tale had a happy end, it was called a romance, after all. As we look at any production of the Sondheim-Wheeler musical, now knowing from whence Sweeney has come, this understanding helps us appreciate just how its creator's genius has widened and enriched the tale. As the audience, we can choose whom we see. Do we see Sweeney Todd, or do we see Benjamin Barker? And then we ask the ultimate question, how is he... Or could he be one and the same? Green finch and linnet bird, nightingale, blackbird, how is it you sing? How can your jubilate sitting in cages? One of the most beautiful songs Stephen Sondheim ever wrote is the haunting Green Finch and Linnet Bird, and certainly one of the most memorable as sung here by Sarah Rice on the original 1979 Broadway cast recording. In order to gain even deeper perspective into the tale of Sweeney and the original Broadway production, I am joined by my very special guest today, Sarah Rice, who shares not only insight on creating the role of Joanna, but just what it was like to work with Stephen Sondheim, Hal Prince, and the original stars of the show. I am Deeply honored and so grateful to have Sarah Rice with me here today on The Gilded Gentleman. From her iconic roles to her extraordinary voice, she is truly part of Broadway and New York theater history. 
Sarah often says that she came to New York with two cats, $100, and a piano. Shortly after arriving, she landed the role of Louisa in the original production of the off-Broadway classic The Fantastics, in which she continued to appear off and on for two years. Trained for the opera stage with her coloratura voice, Sarah has performed nationally and internationally on stages from the acclaimed Santa Fe Opera to the original and legendary La Fenice in Venice, Italy. Her opera roles include so many classics from the repertory, including Marie in Donizetti's The Daughter of the Regiment, to Gilda in Rigoletto, and appearances in The Merry Widow alongside the great Joan Sutherland herself. Her roles for the musical theater include Christine in the Montreal and San Francisco productions of Phantom of the Opera, Marion in The Music Man, Maria in West Side Story, and Anne in Sondheim's A Little Night Music, among, again, so many others. But perhaps her most extraordinary night of all was on March 1st, 1979, when she stepped onto the stage of Broadway's Eurus Theater, today's Gershwin Theater, to create the role of Joanna in the original Broadway production of Stephen Sondheim's Sweeney Todd, which she went on to record, as many listeners will well know, for the original cast album. It is that moment that role, and that experience that brings her to the Gilded Gentleman today. Sarah, I am so honored to have you with me today on the Gilded Gentleman. Thank you, Carl, and I'm so thrilled to be here. I'm so happy you're here. So, Sarah, you said the other day when we were chatting that it was Sondheim, in many ways, that brought you to New York. You were training for a, for an operatic career. But can you talk about that? How did you land in New York in the first place? Well, I was too young to sing opera yet. So I was still studying. But back in Arizona, a theater friend of mine and I, we would listen in his bedroom on his little record player, all the Sondheim musicals, the the Follies and Company and the Little Night Music. And I love French impressionistic music. And it was like, oh, my God. And of course, I wanted to be Victoria Mallory when I grew up. And so it was like that was one of the things that really made me want to come, you know, to be part of that world. So it was Sondheim and it was also um, Tom Jones and Harvey Schmidt. I wanted to do the Fantastics. I could not get arrested in Arizona in the role. They would not hire me because they were hiring very pretty girls at the time. And I, you know, I looked like the girl next door. I mean, I wasn't hideous, but I wasn't Hollywood pretty. So I could not get arrested in the role at all. So I won a singing contest for Phoenix Musical Theater for 400 and I won $400 and they wouldn't give me the money till I left town. And so that paid for my one-way plane ticket and to bring the cats and the piano and and stuff. It's what paid for it and um they wanted me to start a career. They didn't want me to waste the money in Arizona. And start a career you certainly did. So you landed in New York, you landed in the Fantastics and then this opportunity came to audition for Joanna in this new Sondheim musical. How did that all come about? Well, I had an agent and they wanted a legit soprano, which is unusual in Broadway musicals today. So uh, we and they wanted us to audition with opera arias. So I went and I sang every coloratura aria that I had at that point. And um, it was between me and Betsy Jocelyn. And they had us call back five times because they couldn't decide. There was a faction that wanted Betsy and there was a faction that wanted me. 
and they couldn't decide which one. And so at the fifth callback, I had sung everything that I had except for Steal Me Sweet Thief. And so I sang that. It moved the producer, and she said to Hal, that's the one you have to hire. And so that's how I got the part. She told me this years later when they came to visit me in Santa Fe. So it was it was interesting, you know. How did you go about creating this role of Joanna? I think it's always fascinating when there's a new show mm-hmm. that's in production that's being created. Some of it's done, some of it's not. You hear bits of music. So after accepting the role of Joanna, what did you have to work with? And how did you develop the character in the part? Well, Greenfinch was written... I think by the time I was cast, it wasn't written for me. And Sondheim used to call it the art song because it was, you know, its own little piece kind of thing. It's really an aria, really. Yeah, it is. And, um, you know, and it's like a little monologue. You know, it's Joanna's moment of realization that she is, you know, why does the cage bird sing? You know, that it's like it's her moment of realizing, oh, my God, that's me, too. It isn't just you guys. It's me trapped so in when we auditioned for it they had us read the scene of where she figures out to steal the key and she's going to do this and she's going to do that and all that was cut as we got into rehearsal they realized that the focus needed to be on angela and len on on you know those two characters and uh so my part kept getting telescoped and telescoped and telescoped till it was just kind of the essence of who she was. It didn't change that much. There was a scene at the end of the show where he goes to kill me, the whistle blows or Angela screams and he just puts me down the chute. And so I end up down in the basement and then he's coming for me and I start shrieking Greenfinch and Leonard Bird at the top of my lungs and Anthony hears me and rescues me. Well, that that was all cut. So it became less involved, but I knew the history, so I knew how to bridge the... the yeah, Everything got reduced to like one or two lines, but at least I knew where I was coming from. And as far as direction and the development of the character, Hal didn't give you characterizations. He He hired you because you were what he wanted. So it was up to you to figure out how you got there. As long as you made the picture, he thinks in big picture and not in character development so much, except uh, the only the only direction he ever gave me was I want you to be like a Victorian heroine, like Adele, (laughs) you know, very frontal and all the hands and everything. And so that was that was the only direction that I got for the character. Did you try different things and see what was comfortable to you or how did you develop Joanna? Well, I didn't know which way to go. You know, you can either be Sweeney Todd's daughter or you can be Benjamin Barker's daughter. And it was like, which way do I go with this? And my acting teacher came to rehearsals, I guess, and she she said, you know, you you have to be the yellow spot on a very gray canvas. And you're the sign of hope that, you know, that this isn't all there is. And so I decided to do that. I decided to be Benjamin Barker's daughter. Betsy chose more to be Sweeney Todd's daughter. And, you know, they were two very valid interpretations, very different. But Hal gave you the room to do that. 
But when you're young and you're expecting to be micromanaged <laughs> of how to act, you know, and, and you don't get that. And then it's like, well, what am I supposed to do? It's so fascinating because you were, what, 19, 20 years old at this yeah. point. And then you what were rehearsals like when you're with these very well-known performers in this brand new production by none other than Mr. Sondheim? What was that like? Incredibly well organized. Hal and Stephen are both really, really classy. They're classy. And um, just how well, I mean, you know, Hal has a team around him. So everything, everything is extremely organized. The thing that I was most impressed with was Angela's work ethic. She, because those, these lyrics were fiendishly difficult and it was also in a part of her voice that she hadn't used before. She said that she was singing a third higher than she'd ever sung before. And she actually studied with Laura Thomas Sondheim sent her to Laura Thomas to learn how to access that part of her voice, you know, because she'd moved from belting to... But anyway, what impressed me the most was Angela's work ethic, and she would lock herself... We were rehearsing in a studio, in a theater, and so she would lock herself in one of the dressing rooms with her little cassette recorder and just go over and over and over her lyrics. And that was kind of a major revelation to me because to that point, I thought, well, if I'm really talented, I should get it right on the first try or else I'm, I, that means I don't have the talent to do it. And so to watch how hard she worked, it was like, wow, okay, it's okay to work hard. And that was, I, I think, the most impressive thing that, that I took away from that. And with that, Sarah and I are going to take a short break, but we'll be back. There is so much more to say. Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact. With semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch, it's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. Go spread the word. When you get a fresh, hot McCrispie from McDonald's and you can feel the heat coming through the bag, don't try to wait till you get home. Always respect hot chicken. The McCrispie, only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Medela, you put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor, because you know the bigger the fight, the better the reward. Medela, the mark of the fight. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. And we're back. I'm Carl Raymond, host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast. And today we are visiting the Victorian world of Sweeney Todd with Sarah Rice, creator of the character of Joanna in the original Broadway production. One of the things that strikes me about a great deal of Sondheim's work, and we're going to talk about some of the other productions and things that you've sung in a few minutes, but Correct me if I'm wrong, but it's it's operatic. It's very Mozart in the sense because mm. you have to learn everybody else's part in mm -hmm. addition to yours, so that there's no time for, in between you singing and another character singing. You essentially have to learn the entire ensemble. Correct? Yes, and also with Sondheim, a dotted note is there for a reason. 
So you have to learn, like with Mozart, you have to learn it completely cleanly because it's everything is there. He's very specific about words. You can't kind of gloss over it. You have to really learn it exactly and cleanly because it all means something. And even, you know, 40 years later, when I, I still sing Greenfinch and publicly, and when I do, it's like, oh, my God, that's what that means. <laughs> well, that's really interesting because I think one of the many extraordinary things about Sondheim is that you can grow with the lyrics, grow with the mm-hmm. meaning of the song. When I was 14 years old, I had no idea what Send in the Clowns meant. And now at this point in my life, I know exactly, exactly what Send what in the I Clowns write. right? So so talk about the evolution of, of Greenfinch and Leonard Bird is what did it mean to you when you performed it in the show? And what does it mean singing now? Well, back then it was, please, God, don't let me fall off the back of this, this tall those stairs, or, those yeah, stel- yeah. you know, there was it was a postage size stamp that I was standing on in these crocheted gloves and the reticule. <laughs> yes. And they would swing me out on this thing and there was no back on it. And I fall down standing up. I just do. And I was so scared all the time that I was going to fall off, you know, just lean back and fall off the back. So mostly it was fear of, please, God, you know, let me let me stay on this thing. But, you know, Greenfinch then, you know, I mean, it it slowly evolved. I have a, a funny Sondheim story. The first time I was off book with Greenfinch uh, in rehearsal and it was 10 a.m. and I don't do mornings very well. And I had been taking this opera acting class where they taught you to ad lib in different languages so that if you ever went up on stage, you could just keep going with something, you know, and no and no one's going to know the difference, mostly. So I was off book for the first time, first thing in the morning. And I sang, how can you refrain instead of how can you remain? And I thought, you know, good save, good save. And I got off stage into the wings and Sondheim came up to me and he said, if you knew what you were singing about, you wouldn't have made that mistake. And it was like, whoa, uh, he was right. And the nice thing is, is that I guess he thought I got it right somewhere because years later, he chose my rendition of Greenfinch as his favorite recording of Greenfinch. And it's in the Smithsonian. It's a, he, There was a, like a compilation recording that they did of his favorite renditions of different things of his. And my Greenfinch made it into that category. So I'm kind of, I'm proud of that, especially coming from, if you knew what you were singing about, you wouldn't have made that mistake. What did you learn the most from working with Stephen Sondheim? How exact you have to be in learning his music. But the thing is, is that so many times, especially in cabaret, pianists want to improve on the harmonies and stuff or they they're not really learning what it is and the thing is is that he's so specific if you don't do it as he wrote it and it doesn't mean that you can't do other renditions of it and things like that but i guess because i was baby trained <laughs> by the master um that if I don't hear the right harmony in the accompaniment, and the accompaniment is like an acting partner. That was the thing with the orchestrations and the the whole thing is that if it's not 
right, you go down the wrong path. You it, it'll it'll shoot you into a whole nother key or something. You know, he's just so specific. And that's that's what I learned is that you just have to really learn it exactly. Then then if you decide to do an arrangement of it or do something else, I mean he he got a lot looser with it in later years. In the beginning, it was like if you couldn't do the role, he didn't want you singing it kind of thing. He didn't want anything done to it, but he he relaxed a lot in later years as everybody was singing it. Well, the other thing too that always struck me about Sondheim's music, it's very exposed, right? And and that's very true of Mozart too. You can't really you can't hide cheat. behind much in a Mozart ensemble and right. you can't and or even tr- in solo. You can't. Right, cuz right. And that's true really of Sondheim too, mm-hmm. right? You can't hide. You got to get it right. You have to get it right and and it's right with specificity you know that it's there's a reason that he's done it that way and it's up to you to figure out why but he had very specific reasons for doing it it's like a phrase in one part of the song will be different than the phrase the next time you sing it and it's for a reason and it's up to you as the performer to figure out what that reason is and that's you know a lot of people don't like singing Sondheim because it's too hard but when you really just look at it like Mozart, you know, there's there's a reason behind everything they do. Let's talk about Hell Prince a little bit. You talked sure. a little bit earlier about what his approach to character development was. Talk a little bit about what your experience was working with him on the show overall. Well, he was juggling two or three shows at that point. He had a bunch of a bunch of things that he was working on. So he would come in for four or five hours in the morning and rehearse us. And then the rest of the afternoon was spent working on just getting it right, you know, kind of thing. And the show wasn't completely written until almost opening night. They they sent Sondheim home to finish writing the score. There was a lot of stuff in the second act that wasn't finished. But with Hal, again, he was just very organized. He had his team of people around and they they would kind of work with us after Hal left to go do his other projects and stuff. But he thinks very strongly in big visual pictures and how you got there was your business. So Victor and I choreographed Kiss Me on our own. We just went off and did it. And there were certain things that you couldn't do physically because of the microphones. These were the old, these were like the first body microphones in use and they they would go on your chest. So it was like, no singing in the clinches, you know, kind of thing, the, the sound man, you know. And I would set off parts of the set. The overtones in my voice would set off metal because there was so much metal in the set. But how, you know, was a like a ringmaster. And they were also trying to decide how dangerous and awful Sweeney and Mrs. Lovett were and how funny, you know, mixing the music hall with the stuff. So the, I think his most of his concentration was just figuring out how far can we push this? Because the original, original script that I saw, um, and I don't know what version that was, in the long line of development, but uh, th- there was a lot more Grand Guignol in it. There was a scene with Tobias down in the basement where he, you know, the g- g- grind it slowly three times, you know, where he's kind of hanging out down there. But 
they had a <laughs> they had a thing in the in the in the script where he opens up a cabinet door and there are all these severed bloody heads. And, you know, and that's when he realizes that he's doomed. But that never made it into the show because they just figured it was too much. And the the judge's song was cut from the show, although it, they put it into the album. And now nobody thinks anything of it. You know, they do it in high schools. Well, it's fascinating because when the show came out, of course, this was a shock, right? So it was tragic. It was a But it was bloody. totally Rigoletto. Well, I know, but in opera, you don't think about it. This, if people really thought about opera, right, Sarah, they'd be horrified it, of all horrified. the stuff that really goes on. But well, we we you know we used to say the byline for the show was "You always eat the one you love." Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah, yeah, the, people didn't know what to make of it. This was not some enchanted evening. Although you know, South Pacific deals with heavy. Absolutely. Well, so faces. does Rogers and Hammerstein. I mean, so much of that so is about of prejudice it, right. and societal issues, which people don't often think about. Either, yeah. Right, right, right. But it definitely was not uh, 42nd Street. Did you know you had a hit right off the bat? No. We didn't know if we had springtime for Hitler or not. The producers kept coming back to us and saying, contrary to word on the street, we are not closing. You know, it's going to be okay. I mean, it was, there were, especially matinees, where it was like the winds whistling in the caverns. And I don't think it made its money back. I don't know until the tour and all the other stuff years later. But people just didn't know what to make of it. Although I have to say every 10-year-old boy who saw it loved it. So I want to talk about your esteemed colleagues. Again, you've mentioned them a little bit, Len Cariou and Angela Lansbury. And you actually have said that Angela Lansbury's dressing room was one of the most fun places in the theater to hang out. Why was that? She was like the mother hen to us all, and she she made sure that each of us felt like we were valued. She was amazing. She knew the carpenter's name, the assistant carpenter, the swing. She knew everybody's name. And in her dressing room, uh, it was Yule Brenner's dressing room, so it was the the front part, and then the dressing part was you know in the other in another room. And so Corinne, her dresser, they would keep bowls of M&Ms for us in the dressing room. And we were allowed to go in there and hang out in that front part. And then if she if if Angela needed her privacy, she would, you know, if we knew the door was closed, that meant not to. But it was great. We'd go and, you know, hang out and eat M&Ms. It was it was just a very cool, welcoming space. Every kindness to Angela was a thank you note from her. We had no scenes together. And at the at the top of the show, we would cross at places or five minutes before places to get into our positions. And so, you know, we were opposite ends. And so whenever we met before the show, she would always take those five minutes and say, how are you doing? How's the singing going? You know, she really cared. And I was I was so impressed by that. And there was a, it was Christmas time, and they were going to do a big dinner for the cast. They were going to take us to some fancy restaurant. And she said, "No, we need to include everyone, crew, orchestra, everybody." And she paid for that dinner out of her own pocket. But she she did that because she wanted everyone to be included, which is just that just says so much. 
about who she was as a person. But she wanted to make sure that everybody was included and part of the family. And um, that impressed me, that the happiness of a cast comes down from the leading lady and how you treat your cast. And I learned, that's one of the main things that I learned from her, was that when I went on to do leading lady stuff, that I made sure that the cast and the crew and everybody felt that they were important and a valued part of the contribution to making our show the best that it could be. And I learned that from her. And so that's the biggest legacy, I think. What about Len Carrieux? What was working with Len like and what did you learn particularly from him? Well, Len was in the beginning happy and joking and all that kind of stuff, you know, because they knew him and he was, uh, you know, he was this was his second show with them, I think, or third, maybe even his third. And so he was really jovial and funny and all this kind of stuff. And then as the rehearsals went on and the feelings got darker and darker, and he was also going through a divorce at the time. And so he became very quiet and closed off. You know, his whole focus was on being Sweeney and stuff. And so um, he wasn't as user-friendly in those days. But since we've performed together and he's wonderful and and hysterically funny and a prankster, you know, kind of thing. And so I'm, I'm glad that we've had times together to where it's just he can be himself again. You know, I think that the darkness of the role really played on him. And, and again, he was going through a divorce and there was a darkness over him. Now, George Hearn took over the role mm -hmm. um, after a certain point of time. Can you talk about the different characterizations that both Len and George brought to the character of Sweeney? Len was very still and dangerous. That was until he explodes. And Len talked about how when he first heard the score at Sondheim's and they played it for him, that when he heard Barber, there was a barber and his wife and he just wept. And he said, that's the core of his characterization. So he played it like he had been an everyman and had these tragedies happen to him that propelled him into the other thing. George was more presentational and bigger, and and he's a bigger personality, too. I mean, just not that Len is, is a small personality, but he's just, you know, this big Irishman, you know, he's, he's great. And um, I saw... His, you know, many times his performances, I'd never performed with him. And I'm sorry that I didn't get a chance to do that. But again, two very different interpretations. And there are people who say that was the best one. No, that was the best one. No, that one. You know, it's amazing to me how many different ways you can play the same thing. Well, that's perfectly into my next question. So okay. if you were to play the role, well, I have two questions, actually. If you were to play the role of Joanna today, what would you do differently? Plastic surgery? No. Um, <laughs> um, probably just trust myself more. You know, I, I wanted so bad in those days to be good and to do the right thing and to, you know, I, I went into every performance wanting to do my best and stuff and not sure if I could and all that stuff. And now... Probably the only difference would be, you know, it's just, okay, just trust. You 
trust you give your best and not everyone's going to like it, but it's the best that you have at the moment. Well, it's a pretty good life lesson, right? Whether it's theater or not. <laughs> yes, right? right. So if they're now let's pretend let's we'll suspend all space and time and everything else. When you look at all the other roles in Sweeney, is there another role that you would love to play, whether it's male or female or, you know, what is there anything else that you really, really found fascinating in the characters? Well, one of the things I'd love I'd love to do before I get too old to do it is I'd love to do Baker Woman just because I knew all of Merle Louise's secret acting things that she did that were just so amazing that no one else has ever recreated because they didn't know. You know, they were they were. Uh, for instance, that bundle of rags that she would carry around. Did you did you see the show actually? Not that one, but Not I've seen. One. Yeah. Okay. Well, the bundle of rags that she carries around with her, she brought a rag doll of her actual daughters that was in that bundle of rags. And of course, over time, it just became so filthy, you couldn't tell what it was. And that's why she was so protective of that bundle, because that was her baby in there. Her daughter, you know, it was a connection to her daughter. That's all she had left. I mean, just just things like that. And another moment that that people have never been able to really recreate, which I don't understand, but it's it's been problematic. In the show, when she's up in the in Sweeney Todd's parlor at the end of the show, right before she's killed, and she's there and she sees the trunk, which is from before, and then she does the gesture of opening the window like she did in the beginning of the show. And for a moment, she realizes who she is. It's like it's a moment of clarity for her. And then Sweeney comes in and startles her. And then she's back to the other thing. And with dementia, that happens a lot of times. You know, it's like there'll be a moment. Something will trigger that moment of clarity. And that's that even makes it more tragic, I think. You know, that it's like Absolutely. for that moment, she knows who she is. She's Lucy again. And then it's gone and she's she's killed. When you see productions of Sweeney today, what goes through your mind? What do you think? I love all the different interpretations. I think one of the good things that the film did was it opened it up. It made the character, you know, I mean, Helena Bonham Carter is so different from Angela because for so many years they were casting Angela Light. You know, that it would be people who kind of had the essence of Angela. And it's like Helena Bonham Carter is so different. And so is Johnny Depp. You know, that it's like it, it's opened it up to many different interpretations. I went down to the Oslo Theater to see their production of it. And it was wonderful. It was kind of like Kurt Vile in its feeling. It was very presentational and white face and the whole thing. And I was very moved by it. You know, the two the two playing um, Sweeney and Mrs. Lovett were wonderful. And they they made me forget to me, a good a good production is when it makes you forget you when you know the ending, but you forget and you go along for the ride. And it's like, no <laughs> kind of thing. Um, and they and they did that. And it was very, very different. So, you know, different directors now are putting their stamp on it, you know, that it wasn't just teeny Todd, which is great. And it'll be interesting to see what Josh Groban and, and Annalee Ashford do with it. You know, what their what their interpretation is. of. I mean, it's been in a pie shop now and it's been, you know, all these different things. And I think it's great. 
You'll um, have to come back on the Gilded Gentleman after you see it, and we'll have a little follow up okay, about we'll have that. A I think that we'll would have be a fun. Cigarette. Right. <laughs> so let's scope out a little bit, and I'd like to talk about your work with Sondheim because you've sung a great deal of his work and continue mm-hmm. to do that. What are some other Sondheim works that you love to sing, and why? Um, my favorite of everything Sondheim is I remember, and I had one of the things that we sat in my friend's bedroom and listened to was the Sondheim musical tribute, the thing with the Scrabble tiles on it and stuff. And hearing Victoria Mallory sing that again, it was the most beautiful thing I'd ever heard. And what I love about it is, is that it, those lyrics apply to so many different things. Of course, it's all a reference to items in a, in a department store that she's just thinking back. And it's, it's, she doesn't really know what sky is. It's, it's like ink, you know, because that's what she knows and stuff. Um, but the overarching thing of it, it's just, to me, it's hauntingly beautiful and it just stays with you. Um, there's, there's so much of Sondheim that is just incredible. Buddy's eyes, um, just the layers of that, you know, that she's lying, that everything she's talking about isn't really true. And she's trying to impress this former lover with how happy her life is and she's lying. And so there's all these different layers. Um, you know, I, I would love to do the road you didn't take, you know, I'm trying to figure out how to, how to make that work and stuff. Um, but just, you know, everything he does, I was so grateful to Phil Bond for letting me be part of Sondheim Unplugged, uh, for 11 years and getting to sing all different kinds of things of Sondheim and then getting to come back and revisit them, you know, over the years, you know, you get to repeat some of it and things. And I watched other people who came back grow as, cause this stuff has to marinate. It's just, there's just so much to it. It's just past learning the notes and the rhythms and the words, which are hard enough. And then it's like, okay, where, what does this all mean to you? Do you think that, is really the genius of what Stephen Sondheim's music and work was? Oh, yes. Oh, definitely. I mean, I love Jerry Herman, too. And I love I love Stephen Schwartz and all, all you know, and, and even Andrew Lloyd Webber, who I, I like because he um, he likes pre-Raphaelite art. <laughs> so it's like, OK, you're all right. Um, you know, kind of thing um, that each each thing is like when Sondheim died. I said, thank you for being the my Cyrano to my very inarticulate Christian. You know, that it's like with Sondheim, you're really speaking of life things, life moments. And uh, that he really gets in there, gets gets deep in that stuff. And, that, and that's what's so satisfying about singing it. You know, what was interesting with the Sondheim Unplugged is that, you know, people would come back who had who had done these roles in their youth and then come back and revisit it as older people, obviously, and just the depth and and stuff. And I'm proud of the fact that I still sing Greenfinch publicly in the original key, not my original key and Betsy's original key, which was a little higher, which was better for me. But still, you know, I'm singing it. Not that anybody cares other than me, but just the fact that, okay, I can still do this. 
If you were talking to a young singer standing right here today with us that was beginning to learn some Sondheim, what would you want to pass on to them that Sondheim passed on to you? Don't fudge it. Learn it exactly and figure it out from there. You have said in interviews, and I I love this, when you don't know what you can't do, then you trust everything will be okay. Can you talk about how that's been true for you? I had a roommate that used to say, you know, how did you do this? And he said, well, I didn't know I couldn't. And so that sort of became our life plan. You trust that everything's going to be okay. I mean, I still do that in my saner moments. So you you just throw your bread out on the water and you see what comes back to you. I mean, look at what you've done, you know, with these podcasts and, you know, just a whole career of this wonderful illumination that you're doing of, of these things, you know, in your way. And it's because you trusted that it would be okay somehow. You just jump off the cliff, right, Sarah? Yeah, you jump <laughs> off the cliff and you flap your wings. Um, but no, it's true. And <clears throat> part of the thing with this being the age that I am am at this time, you know, it's like, okay, what, where do I have a place in the world? Where do I, where can I matter? Where can I make a difference in the world? You know, each age brings different things. But when you're young and you don't know what you're doing, there's there's actually a syndrome that the less you know, the more you think you know. And so when you're young and you don't know, I mean, I have to tell you one very funny Sondheim thing that I said to Sondheim, and I'm really embarrassed, but it's youth. At the Tony party, I had discovered Rosencavalier. And I remember talking to him and I remember saying, you know, I don't I don't know if you know this opera or not, but you, you know, you should really listen to it sometime. I think you'd find it really beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you know, because what do you say? <laughs> um, he just he just kind of went, uh, yeah, you know, I got to go get a drink. You know, <laughs> I'll see you later. Um, you know, I can't believe I actually said that to him. But, you know, you just don't know. You don't know what you don't know. I still don't know what I don't know. Well, none of us do. (laughs) Yeah. So there's a new production of Sweeney about Mm -hmm. to open, of course, on on Broadway. What's your advice for audiences coming to that show? What would you advise them to do in advance? What would you advise them to look out for? Do you have any advice for uh, a new audience coming to Sweeney? No, just go and see it. You know, I mean, most people know it now from the movie. Just go. And, and see it. Sarah, I have been so honored and so excited to have you here today. Uh, and our conversation okay. has been on so many different aspects of your career, your performing, your experience with Sondheim and in Sweeney. Gosh, thank you so much for sitting with me today and having this chat. Thank you for asking. I was so honored <laughs> that you were available and able to do it. So I thank hope, you. first of all, you'll come back to the Gilded Gentleman. Oh, ask me again. I think there are a lot of things we can talk about. Oh, God, yes. Thank you so so, so much, Sarah. It's been a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you. I enjoyed it. And with that, I thank you, my listeners, for joining me today on the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast. The Gilded Gentleman is produced by Bowery Boys Media, and this episode was edited and produced by Kieran Gannon.
I invite listeners to become patrons of the show on patreon.com slash the Gilded Gentleman. Your support truly helps me manage the costs of researching, writing, and creating the show. I couldn't do it without you. I'll see you soon. And after all, what's life without a little glint of gold? Go spread the word. When you get a fresh, hot McCrispy from McDonald's and you can feel the heat coming through the bag, don't try to wait till you get home. Always respect hot chicken. The McCrispy, only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.